Section twenty five of the Myths of the New World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Myth of the New World by Daniel Brinton. Chapter nine, part three. These various abodes to which the incorporeal man took flight were not always his everlasting home. It will be remembered that where a plurality of souls was believed, one of these, soon after death, entered another body to recommence life on earth. Acting under this persuasion, the Algonquin women who desired to become mothers flocked to the couch of those about to die, in hope that the vital principle, as it passed from the body, would enter theirs and fertilize their sterile wombs. And when, among the Seminoles of Florida, a mother died in childbirth, the infant was held over her face to receive her parting spirit, and thus acquire strength and knowledge for its future use. So among the Tachkalis, the priest is accustomed to lay his hand on the head of the nearest relative of the deceased, and to blow into him the soul of the departed, which is supposed to come to life in his next child. Probably, with a reference to the current tradition that ascribes the origin of man to the earth, and likens his life to that of the plant, the Mexicans were accustomed to say that at one time all men have been stones, and that at last they would all return to stones. And, acting literally on this conviction, they interred with the bones of the dead a small green stone, which was called the principle of life. Whether any nations accepted the doctrine of metempsychosis, and thought that the souls of their grandmas might happily inhabit a partridge, we are without the means of knowing. La Hontan denies it positively of the Algonquins, but the natives of Popoyan refuse to kill doves, says Corillon, because they believe them inspired by the souls of the departed. And Father Ignatius, Combe, relates that he heard a woman of the Chiricanes in Buenos Aires say of a fox, May that not be the spirit of my dead daughter? But before accepting such testimony as decisive, we must first inquire whether these tribes believed in a multiplicity of souls, whether these animals had a symbolical value, and if not, whether the soul was not simply presumed to put on this shape in its journey to the land of the hereafter. Inquiries which are unanswered. Leaving, therefore, the question open, whether the sage of Samos had any disciples in the new world, another and more fruitful topic is presented by their well-asserted notions of the resurrection of the dead. This seemingly extraordinary doctrine, which some have asserted was entirely unknown and impossible to the American Indians, was in fact one of their most deeply rooted and widespread convictions, especially among the tribes of the eastern United States. It is indissolubly connected with their highest theories of a future life, 
their burial ceremonies, and their modes of expression. The Moravian brethren give the grounds of this belief with great clearness. That they hold the soul to be immortal, and perhaps think the body will rise again, they give not unclearly to understand when they say, We Indians shall not for ever die, even the grains of corn we put under the earth, grow up and become living things. They conceive that when the soul has been a while with God, it can, if it chooses, return to earth and be born again. This is the highest and typical creed of the Aborigines. But instead of simply being born again in the ordinary sense of the word, they thought the soul would return to the bones, that these would clothe themselves with flesh, and that the man would rejoin his tribe. That this was the real, though often doubtless the dimly understood reason of the custom of preserving the bones of the deceased, can be shown by various arguments. This practice was almost universal. East of the Mississippi, nearly every nation was accustomed, at stated periods, usually once in eight or ten years, to collect and clean the osseous remains of those of its number who had died in the intervening time, and inter them in one common sepulchre, lined with choice furs and marked with a mound of wood, stone, and earth. Such is the origin of those immense tumuli filled with the mortal remains of nations and generations, which the antiquary, with irreverent curiosity, so frequently chances upon in all portions of our territory. Throughout Central America, the same usage obtained in various localities, as early writers and existing monuments abundantly testify. Instead of interring the bones, were they those of some distinguished chieftain, they were deposited in the temples or the council houses, usually in small chests of canes or splints. Such were the charnel houses, which the historians of the Dosotos expedition so often mention, and these are the arcs, which Adair and other authors, who have sought to trace the descent of the Indians from the Jews, have likened to that which the ancient Israelites bore with them on their migrations. A widow among the Tachkalis was obliged to carry the bones of her deceased husband wherever she went for four years, preserving them in such a casket handsomely decorated with feathers. The Caribs of the mainland adopted the custom for all without exception. About a year after death the bones were cleaned, bleached, painted, wrapped in odorous balsams, placed in the wicker basket, and kept suspended from the door of their dwellings. When the quantity of these heirlooms became burdensome, they were removed to some inaccessible cavern, and stowed away with reverential care. Such was the cave at Tarup, a visit to which has been so eloquently described by Alexander von Humboldt in his views of nature. So great was the filial respect for these remains by the Indians, that on the Mississippi, in Peru, and elsewhere, no tyranny, no cruelty, so embittered the indigence against the white explorers, as the sacrilegious search for treasures, 
perpetrated amongst the sepulchres of past generations. Unable to understand the meaning of such deep feeling, so foreign to the European, who without a second thought turns a cemetery into a public square, or seeds it down in wheat, the Jesuit missionaries in Paraguay accuse the natives of worshipping the skeletons of their forefathers, and the English in Virginia repeated it of the Poatans. The question has been debated and variously answered, whether the art of mummification was known and practised in America. Without entering into the discussion, it is certain that preservation of the corpse by a long and thorough process of execution or a slow fire was nothing unusual, not only in Peru, Popoyan, the Carib countries, and Nicaragua, but among many of the tribes north of the Gulf of Mexico, as I have elsewhere shown. The object was essentially the same as when the bones alone were preserved, and in the case of rulers the same homage was often paid to their corpses as had been the just due of their living bodies. The opinion underlying all those customs was that a part of the soul, or one of the souls, dwelt in the bones, that these were the seeds which planted in the earth or preserved and broken in safe places, would in time put on once again a garb of flesh, and germinate into living human beings. Language illustrates this not unusual theory. The Iroquois word for bone is esken, for soul atisken, literally that which is within the bone. In an Atapascan dialect bone is yani, soul Iuni. The Hebrew rabbis taught that in the bone Lutz, the Kokux, remained at death the germ of second life, which at the proper time would develop into a purified body, as the plant from the seed. But mythology and superstitions add more decisive testimony. One of the Aztec legends of the origin of man was that after one of the destructions of the world, the gods took counsel together how to renew the species. It was decided that one of their number, Xolotl, should descend to Mictlan, the realm of the dead, and bring thence a bone of the perished race. The fragments of this they sprinkled with blood, and on the fourth day it grew into a youth, the father of the present race. The profound mystical significance of this legend is reflected in one told by the Quiches, in which the hero gods Xunapu and Xplanku succumbed to the rulers of Xibalba, the darksome powers of death. Their bodies are burned, but their bones are ground in a mill and thrown in the waters, lest they should come to life. Even this precaution is insufficient, for these ashes did not go far. They sank to the bottom of the stream, where in the twinkling of an eye they were changed into handsome youth, and their very same features appeared anew. On the fifth day they displayed themselves anew, and were seen in the water by the people, whence they emerged to overcome and destroy the powers of death and hell, Xibalba. The strongest analogies to these myths 
are offered by the superstitious rites of distant tribes. Some of the tupees of Brazil were wont on the death of a relative to dry and pulverize his bones, and then mix them with their food, a nauseous practice they defended by asserting that the soul of the dead remained in the bones and lived again in the living. Even the lower animals were supposed to follow the same law. Hardly any of the hunting tribes before their original manners were vitiated by foreign influence permitted the bones of game slain in the chase to be broken or left carelessly about the encampment. They were collected in heaps and thrown into the water. Mrs. Eastman observes that even yet the Dakotas deem it an omen of ill luck in the hunt if the dogs gnaw the bones, or a woman inadvertently steps over them. And the Chippeway interpreter, John Tanner, speaks of the same fear among that tribe. The Eurocaries of Bolivia carried it to such an inconvenient extent that they carefully put by even small fish bones, saying that unless this was done, the fish and game would disappear from the country. The traveller on our western prairies often notices the buffalo skulls, countless numbers of which bleach and those vast plains, arranged in circles and symmetrical piles by the careful hands of the native hunters. The explanation they offer for this custom gives the key to the whole theory and practice of preserving the osseous relics of the dead, as well human as brute. They say that the bones contain the spirits of the slain animals, and that some time in the future they will rise from the earth, reclose themselves with flesh, and stock the prairies anew. This explanation, which comes to us from indisputable authority, sets forth, in its true light, the belief of the red race in a resurrection. It is not possible to trace it out in the subtleties with which theologians have surrounded it as a dogma. The very attempt would be absurd. They never occurred to the Indian. He thought that the soul now enjoying the delights of the happy hunting grounds would sometime return to the bones, take on flesh, and live again. Such is precisely the much-discussed statement that Garcilaso de la Vega says he often heard from the native Peruvians. He adds that so careful were they, lest any of the bodies should be lost, that they preserved even the parings of their nails and clippings of the hair. In contradiction to this, the writer Acosta has been quoted, who says that the Peruvians embalmed their dead, because they had no knowledge that the body should rise with the soul. But rightly understood, this is a confirmation of La Vega's account. Acosta means that the Christian doctrine of the body, rising from the dust being unknown to the Peruvians, which is perfectly true, they preserved the body just as it was, so that the soul, when it returned to the earth, as all expected, might not be at loss for a house of flesh. The notions thus entertained by the red race on the resurrection are peculiar to it, and stand apart from those of any other. They did not look for the second life to be 
either better or worse than the present one. They regarded it neither as a reward nor as punishment to be sent back to the world of the living. Nor is there satisfactory evidence that it was ever distinctly connected with a moral or physical theory of the destiny of the universe, or even with their prevalent expectation of recurrent epochs in the course of nature. It is true that a writer whose personal veracity is above all doubt, Mr. Adam Hodgson, relates an ancient tradition of the cocktails, to the effect that the present world will be consumed by a general conflagration, after which it will be reformed, pleasanter than it is now, and that then the spirits of the dead will return to the bones in the bone mounds, flesh will knit together their loose joints, and they shall again inhabit their ancient territory. There was also a similar belief among the Eskimos. They said that in the course of time the waters would overwhelm the land, purify it of the blood of the dead, melt the icebergs, and wash away the steep rocks. A wind would then drive off the waters, and the new land would be peopled by reindeers and young seals. Then would he above blow once on the bones of the men, and twice on those of the women, whereupon they would at once start into life, and lead thereafter a joyous existence. But though there is nothing in these narratives alien to the course of thought in the native mind, yet as the date of the first is recent, 1820, as they are not supported, so far as I know, by similar traditions elsewhere, and as they may have arisen from Christian doctrines of a millennium, I leave them for future investigation. What strikes us the most in this analysis of the opinions entertained by the Red Race on the future life is the clear and positive hope of a hereafter in such strong contrast to the feeble and vague notions of the ancient Israelites, Greeks, and Romans. And yet the entire inertness of this hope in leading them to a purer moral life. It offers another proof that the fulfillment of duty is in its nature no wise connected with or derived from a consideration of ultimate personal consequences. It is another evidence that the religious is wholly distinct from the moral sentiment, and that the origin of ethics is not to be sought in connection with the ideas of divinity and responsibility. End of section 25